Today I welcome Jack George and Thomas Duckling, Assistant and Deputy Head at Aiglon College in Switzerland. In this episode, we discuss why humans need to be in the center of educational AI change, developing students of good character, creating a blockchain edu wallet, and the success of meet, feet, eat model to framework the use of mobile phones in schools. You've recently spoken a lot about the relevance of human beings in the age of AI. What sparked your interest in AI in this particular area? We are a character-based school. We believe in the balanced development of mind, body, and spirit. And that's been the fabric of who we are since our inception as a school. And essentially, while everyone was kicking off, you know, last, just over a year ago, talking about AI and how it can ease teacher workload and how it's going to, uh, you know, all these questions around plagiarism and things like that. Actually, we were just thinking, how do we measure good humans? How is it going to change what is important and what it means to be human? And so we essentially wanted to create a conceptual landing pad while everyone was looking the other way, making amazing AI-generated models of cats. I mean, it's fascinating about AI and technology. Again, I don't know if you've heard many of the other podcasts. I do a lot of speaking around the future of education. And part of where it ends up is I'm a technologist. I studied technology way back, but it comes down to humans, right? And your point about humans is that technology is a lever. It's an enabler. Yet we drive too many decisions based on fad, new interest, media hype, and to keep up with the Joneses. So tell me what things and how you're centering humans in your kind of your AI development or in your technology roadmap. Yeah. So, I mean, from the outset, we wanted to rethink assessment and what character education is as a school. We set about trying to create a holistic assessment model that was culturally adaptable as much as we can. And that, as we say, measures mind, body and spirit. And that actually hands over responsibility of that documentation and celebration to the student to some extent. So it's a shared journey. Do your students get involved with the shape of that and how much technology they use and how it gets brought in? Yeah, they do to an extent. I mean, I think there's two separate things here, I think, which are quite important for us to distinguish between. It's sort of our approach to the future and our appreciation of the past. We're very positive about the future, very positive about technology. So we're very pro-AI. And funny enough, Jack today was working on showing me some work he's doing in both cryptocurrency, but also in explaining Web 3.0 to young students, right? So and equally, we've got students working in robotics and all these sorts of stuff. So the students are pushing us forward and we are trying to give them the space to follow their passions. The separate part of that, though, as well, is we do see technology as, as you say, transient or at times a fad. Because actually, but we see human beings and their character development as a constant. And actually, we've got a lovely circular feel towards what we think education is at the moment. Actually, if you take a step back from what education was and is, it has always been about creating people who are able to make society better, whatever that was. Even if if you're talking about cavemen or you're talking about industrial revolution, wherever you may go throughout history... Essentially, they need a level of education to allow people to make that society move forward at a pace. Where we are at the moment is such as the power of AI and the ability of the AI to fill in gaps, essentially, where humans previously would have been. We now think that actually the character side offers a unique opportunity for people to really celebrate humanity, celebrate their own personal character growth. And we think essentially that's the thing that AI can't touch. 
you know, to some extent, there is a belief out there. For instance, Dylan William and John Hattie recently said that we should act as if we are two years away from AGI, so artificial general intelligence, which is kind of human level intelligence at which we really have to question who we are and what we do as a species, I guess. Actually, with that comes democratization of learning. So if we've got AI that can personalize learning for the students, where do international schools and schools as a whole fit in? Our belief is that character, we need to pivot towards celebrating character. And that is what we will do. We will raise good, kind humans in the age of AI. Yeah. And that has to be something that I think all schools aspire to do. Do you find that sometimes you're at conflicts with your kind of families that you attract? They want leading as they want to be a high performing school. They all probably work in and around technology. Do you find there's any conflict to that or do they just believe in, I want my child to thrive? Yeah. I mean, the flat answer there is yes, of course. Right. So (laughs) our school is not cheap. You know, it's one of the more expensive schools in the world and therefore parents have expectations and those expectations lead to the idea they want them to get into good universities. Right now, fundamentally, a lot of the good universities want people with very good academic performance and they also want people to jump through various hoops. You know, this is that whole kind of, I'm always wary of people talking about new paradigms continually, but we are in a, a system that we have to subscribe to. We obviously think that system is changing, like many schools would like to be at the front of that change. But that said, we are quite fortunate in that, yes, people still expect good grades. Yes, people still expect a good maths level. They expect a good SAT score and good IB score and all those sort of things. But actually, upon discussion with parents, they are often most proud of how their children change as individuals. You know, one of the conversations I have a lot with parents is they came home for Christmas and they were like a different person. I hear that a lot. Uh, and we're very proud of that sentence. It's not measurable. You can't necessarily put that into a number. You'd struggle to necessarily communicate that well to a university on paper. But I do hear it all the time that the growth of confidence in an individual and even something as simple as the kind of creation of thinking about the future we really look to instill that kind of ambition in young people. That's one of the things that our parents, maybe it's not what they sign up for in the first instance, but it's certainly one of the things I think they reflect on after and they're most grateful for. And just to add, you know, to some extent, yes, we are shackled by examples, but actually changes on the horizon. For instance, you've got Omar Abosh, who's just become the CEO of Pearson. And he came across from, well, Microsoft and he's big into AI and pivoting towards the future. And I think that actually he will create huge change. And there are lots of big players who are getting involved now who see this change and this need. It's to some extent very close. We need schools like yours. And there are schools all around the world who are actually taking that chance. They want to lead that change. They want to be the guinea pigs in a way. And there's a lot of lip service paid to change, particularly around assessment entry. You talked about You're in the system, right? We have to go through this to get access to the next level of education. So me as a parent, whilst I don't agree with necessarily the UK education platform, I'm in it. My four children going through it and they have to jump through those hoops that you talked about, Tom, to get through to it. Is there a point and are you doing anything at Aglon to be able to change that so assessment is different? Because it's employers, isn't it? We always say you need to get to university, but Employers again, we don't need university. We've got two changes I think we'd like to discuss. And the thing we probably should talk about here is our holistic reporting model. And the second bit is what we're doing in relation to another initiative in relation to kind of blockchain. So I'll let Jack talk about the second bit and I'll talk about the first. 
So our holistic reporting model is something we're working on and we've got trials currently running and it's going quite well. And we're looking to go whole school with it from our next academic year. And we have a slightly different approach. So we've been in lots of conversations with people who are doing holistic reporting or assessment in some form. And we have a slightly nuanced approach to that. Whereas lots of people are trying to essentially assess, record evidence and report upon soft skills. We do have that, but we're quite helped by the fact that our vision for education is the balanced development of mind, body and spirit. And then if you imagine three dials on a dashboard, we are working on a reporting transcript essentially that has three dials. We have a mind dial or a mind wheel, and that actually records a relatively traditional form of attainment because we think knowledge is important. We think actually there's lots of benefits to a classical education as well. Our school was created on the idea of merging a classical subject-based education with an appreciation of the outside world and, and experiential education. So it's quite fundamental to who we are. And for that reason, we've got that. Really, we still report on traditional subject-based education. Then our middle dial, if you will, is our body wheel, our body dial. And that is where we look to kind of reflect on a student's contribution to what we call our character side of the school. So our expeditions, creativity and compassion. And then we look for students to evidence their own journey on that wheel. So that's the first thing we're doing, which we think is obviously we're very proud of. And the thing that's different from what we're doing to what some other people are doing is that we still hold that equal balance, that equivalency between what would be considered a traditional educational attainment with that soft skill development. Yeah, so we, we're currently developing a project called EduWallets. And the idea there is that, so, you know, at present, to quote Pamela Cantor at the Centre for Whole Child Education in the US, our current education system at worst assumes that students are empty vessels to be filled with pieces of knowledge and at best active thinkers in which learning occurs through exploration and sense-making. But either way, where is the ownership in that? And we would like to embrace Web3 and blockchain to allow ownership of journeys. So we don't want a student's report, or we call it a mark reading, to exist on our servers. We want the student to own that. And actually, in terms of blockchain technology, that decentralization and an immutable ledger allows students to own their journey and to tokenize their educational development. And that's what we're currently looking to with a technology company in Switzerland who are brilliant. And it's about essentially tokenizing in the first instance reports and then micro competencies and badges as well going forward. I love both of those things. And I've got a couple of kind of follow-up questions for each. I mean, Tom, in terms of your dials, is that something that can be easily transferable, like wrapped up and made available to anyone else in education yeah. in other schools? We would hope so. I mean, involved a lot of these conversations, for example, with CIS and also the Coalition for Learning and that sort of stuff. So we would definitely feel that because actually Jack's a bit more out there than me, maybe. Maybe I'm a bit more traditional in some of these elements. For example, I think that whilst education does need to change to a modern world, I still put a huge amount of value in knowledge. Uh, I think knowledge is always going to be valuable and knowledge and ownership of knowledge is really, really valuable as well. I think one of the things that we do, and whilst it fits in with our balanced development of mind, body and spirit, essentially take away those words. You're saying academic education, co-curricular education, personal development. And actually, if you then step back and say, what is a school? What's a school for? Very few people, I think, these days would say school is just about learning facts and figures. Most people would say a school is about three things. 
that experiential side, the academic side, and also that personal growth side. So I certainly think that our approach in terms of making those three areas of a school equivalent and looking to have different forms of assessment within them, not trying to say that every assessment, because you notice in those three assessments, they're different, right? So one of them is an attainment-driven model. Another one is a criteria-based model, which is essentially based upon participation and engagement in the whole program rather than excellence necessarily. And then the third one is a self-reflective assessment as well. So by balancing those three different approaches, I think it's applicable actually to all schools. I think it's also important though to note at this point that there is a danger to some extent of us prescribing what we believe to be the soft skills that are of value. And actually that's why the reporting model, when you package it up, if another school were to take it on, they have to be able to decide what is more important in terms of the soft skills that they value. Because for instance, you know, with the GLOBE study in 2004, we know that countries value collectivism more than others. So we know that, for instance, the value of soft skills differs between cultures, between countries. And that's something, so we have to make it adaptive in that sense. Jack's totally right about that. I do think each school has to have its own vision. That's always been one of my big concerns when people subscribe to a kind of a meta vision that comes from somewhere else, actually. I think it's really important. That doesn't mean they're not applicable across other schools or other groups. The question I often ask people, which challenges them, is does your vision statement match your output? And what I mean by that is loads of schools have these lovely vision statements, making humans for a better world. And then they send kids off and they say they've got 37 in the IB. Now, 37 in the IB is great and actually means they might be better humans that make the world a better place. But where is their understanding that they're actually hitting that vision statement in more general? How, where is their assessment of that? Where's their reporting of that? Where's their output? And that's all we're trying to do really is link our vision to the output for students. That's something that we do as an agency is that we talk about live purpose. And I'm tired of looking at schools, mission, values, even purpose of vision statements. They end up saying the same thing, right? So, you know, to be a lifelong learner, it's like, gee, you know, really? You know, yeah. can we not come up with anything out or to prepare a world that we cannot imagine? They are just empty statements unless you show it and you're leading with change. So again, when you're manifesting it through content, through your own communications, through the work you're doing, how do you wrap that up? And we kind of report against that stuff, which has become a big part of us trying to determine which is different. How do schools really differentiate? And are they really different or are they just prescribing? And it becomes navel gazing kind of, don't we sound great? Because we come up with a corporate statement without you intentionally doing something great. But you guys are. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. What I love about the, you know, talk about adaptability completely, right? If we're in this age now, you've got to be fit for purpose and relevant to this audience or this, these young men and women that you may be educating. I was talking yesterday about micro generations. And I don't know if you guys have seen this too, is that there was a distinct generational gap between my grandfather, my father, my father and me. Some, it got shorter in terms of myself and my eldest child, but between my eldest child and my youngest child, there's eight years. And they all talk about they're very different. The boundaries, and I think a lot of it's driven through technology, it's access to content, it's access to 24-7 connectivity that shifted these things. Are you seeing that shift as you kind of recruit more students in? Are they changing? Have they changed much? 
I don't think we can underestimate the importance of COVID, which I realize is another, you know, incredible, you talk about cliches that are used on podcasts. That was a real change, I think, for young people. There has been a significant change, I think, as a micro generation for students that were pre-COVID and post-COVID. I do think there's been a different approach to learning. I think there's been a different approach and understanding of life. And for us personally, in terms of kind of a well-being side, we have seen huge heightened academic anxiety in that COVID generation. So even now, COVID seems like a distant memory. We have conversations all the time and it often comes back to, well, they missed this then, they were online at this point and that sort of stuff. So I wouldn't necessarily feel there's been a huge difference, certainly in my career, with the fact kids are kids. And actually, I think they're pretty constant, but I could be wrong. It's them having access. It's the amount of consumption or access they get to devices. You know, from we had a few devices, then there's more devices, augmented reality, bigger TVs, smaller TVs, more phones. It's just have more abundance of of access, I suppose. And in schools like yours, there's the affordability piece as well. So they probably get access to more than most. COVID was an instance of forced adaptation, essentially. Mm. And it really allowed us to think, right, how do we adapt? What do we do? We need to do it now. And it showed us as educators that we can do that and that we should do that. You know, so many schools are talking about we need to develop these life-worthy competencies. One of the things that we need to include in that is that we need to allow students to tell us what those life-worthy competencies are and what they could be, because the world we grew up in doesn't exist anymore. So we made a big decision at the start of this year because there are, I mean, you would have seen the, was it UNESCO, promoted the fact that schools should ban mobile phones. Many of our large competitors and many leading international schools in the world have banned mobile phones during the day due to distractions, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a lot of interesting research out there regarding distractions. We made a very different choice at that point. So we wanted to talk about character education. So we we kind of stepped back from this and we said, what do we want? Well, we want to create young people that make good choices. Okay. So if you take a phone away from a kid, are they making a good choice? Well, no, they're not. They're being told not to have their phone. So they're not making any choice whatsoever. And in fact, they're having that choice taken away from us. So we then promoted instead our approach towards technology and specifically in terms of phones. And we have a philosophy here, which is really working, is called Meet, Feet, Eat. And we have a little logo, we have signs. And you will see, if you go in between our lessons, you'll see a lot of teachers, including myself and Jack, running around shouting, Uh, meet, feet, eat at students. What does meet, feet, eat mean? Well, okay, it means that you need to make a good choice as an individual about when you use your phone. I often use the example, which is you don't swear in front of your grandparents. Now that's a choice, okay? If you're someone that uses swear words, you know that when you see your grandparents, you don't do that. So you have an ability as a human being to self-regulate your character. And the same is true of mobile devices, right? Sometimes you always have a choice how you use it in terms of the respect and responsibility of using a device. So we say that anytime you're in a meeting with another person, and we count, when I say meeting, we mean assemblies and lessons or briefings and that sort of stuff, the automatic status should be your phone should be away and you should be focused on that meeting. We say that anytime you're on your feet, rather than doom scrolling, we have a beautiful campus, 28 buildings on the side of a mountain. We say anytime you're on your feet, you shouldn't be scrolling through your phone. Instead, you should have your eyes up, your phone should be away, and you should be greeting other people, saying hello, good morning. And then we have another one, which is that we think it's really important that when you're sitting down for food, that's a wonderful social occasion. It's a great chance to grow, develop relationships, but also grow your character. And so before we say that anytime you're eating, you need to have your technology away. And we're pretty strict on those things. So we're pro-technology and that we don't take their phones away from them. Many of our kids will walk around here in lessons with 
an iPad that they'll write on, a laptop they'll use to access their resources because many of our teachers are paper-free and a mobile phone they'll have as well. Many of our students have three devices, including myself and Jack both have three devices. But what we want them to do is how to make the choice. And for me, again, that's character education and the intersection of character education with technology because it's about developing the person rather than reacting to the technology. For me, that's a beautiful little case study to show where it all fits in. That works for our particular school context. You know, there might be listeners out there thinking that would never work in my school. And that's absolutely fine. But that's the culture we're trying to build in our community. And our students actually correct us on it too, all the time. You know, sometimes I'll get caught on my phone and they'll say, me eat feet and it's a funny little thing and you go, oops. But that's where we are at the moment. Was it met with open arms and ease? Was it something that, again, leadership wise, you talk about, we don't all abide by this immediately, but having a culture, the word is critical there, is that you all believe that this is the right thing. Was it hard to get through and embed? And now you're embedded, is it hard to maintain? Not as hard as I'd imagined. Again, one of the big things about this as well was how another kind of philosophy that I always stick to is um, treat children like adults, but forgive them like children. In general, we were really open with them. We said other schools, and there are schools in our local vicinity, are banning your phones. And this is why we're going to do it. We also, at the same time, did another thing. We used to have this terrible thing that drove me insane called a prep timetable, which is our essentially we told people when to do homework. And at the same time, we completely deconstructed that. If you come back to the points Jack was making about the kind of democratization, decentralization of education, moving forward, is it education going to happen in such a structured, linear way? Are we going to be learning in these blocks of time? And we kind of said this is a bit absurd, really. If we want to create young people, and it, it comes back to that point you made previously about meta-generations, uh, micro-generations, sorry, and also about that self-autonomous point piece, because we had young people who essentially weren't planning their time. Again, I'm going to sound old and traditional here, but you know, I used to have a homework diary, and I wrote down everything in my homework diary that I did each day, and I ticked it off. And that was the only way I could control as a kid. Now, they are obviously using Google Classroom here. They're using different devices here, but they actually have to adopt and understand their own system. And those two things happened simultaneously for us as a school because we said to the students, we're treating you in this way because we want you to make these choices. So was it adopted? I think it was adopted quite well. And just Jack that says otherwise. The second bit, though, was it wasn't necessarily understood immediately. It was adopted quite positively, but certainly that autonomous self-regulative piece on management of time, that caused some disasters. And actually, weirdly, it wasn't the students you think that would be a disaster for. You might think it'd be the disorganized students. Actually, the disorganized students were having someone saying, now you need to be organized. They quite liked it. Bizarrely, the ones that were so hyper-organized and now had to make choices about where to invest their time, they actually found it the most stressful as well. And I think studies prove that anyway. Some people like routine, the rigor, and they work within the rigor. Others don't like the structure, so they rebel against it. And yet you give them the choice. And I always say about the phone, it's fascinating that you've adopted this. They're going to go out there in the real world and they're going to have all these devices. They're going to have more devices. They're going to have all these disruptions and notifications. Yeah, we've had a bit of a Copernicus revelation recently, you know, where we've realized that it's not purely based on outcomes. It's individual developmental experiences of learning. Every school talks about being student-centered, but we are genuinely trying to think of new ways in which to do that. I want to just quickly go back to blockchain. Most people associate blockchain with crypto and obviously crypto being a dud currency full of fraudsters and criminals. 
because they misunderstand it because they're not technologists. That's the association. You've obviously taken it on in terms of its purest form, which I love. Can you just explain how that germinated, this idea of using this journey, this educational wallet, and what's the hope for it in terms of it going inside, obviously, your school, but obviously beyond? The issue that we needed to solve was that students were coming to us with transcripts that we would have to email certain schools for transcripts that didn't really mean a huge amount to us. You know, it was given to us on paper or as an email or an attachment or something like that. And we thought, wouldn't it be a beautiful thing if each student could have an Edger wallet or a blockchain-based wallet in which they keep their credentials? I am of the opinion that in the future, everything will be tokenized. So for instance, the deeds to your house will run on NFT technology. Central banking digital currencies will be here before we know it. And actually, to keep your academic credentials there in a wallet as well will be absolutely essential. And I'm not saying this is the future, but I'm saying that schools have a duty to innovate if this is one of the future pathways. Are you sort of taking part of an investment in, you say, you're working with a third party, or is this you as the client getting a third party with some experience to build something bespoke for you? What's the framework? Yeah. So one kind of revolution that we've been through recently as a school is that actually we've stopped constantly taking in emails from all these tech companies telling us that their service is the best that we could ever imagine. We will function within their kind of limitations. And actually what we've said is we are educators. This is what we believe should exist. Why doesn't it exist? So we've started going to tech companies and saying, look, this is what we want. It may be behind the sky. It may not be possible at this point, but this is the end result that we would like. Can you build this? And so many have either said, yes, pay us a lot of money, or they've said no. Some have said, I like that idea and let's try and build it. And then we can talk about money as we get further down the line as we build the product. And I think that that actually says a lot about tech companies in education in that some are genuinely just there to make money. Some are there because they genuinely want to change education. Yeah. You have to wait for my blog coming out shortly, which is the big ed tech con. Uh, yeah, I'm frustrated by how much and it is just buying in. It's the magpie effect to lots of things. And it's, you know, throw another way, it's the emperor's new clothes. Like, what do we believe? What do we trust? So your blockchain is amazing. I really want to stay in touch to what you're doing. I think blockchain has an amazing breadth of how it could be used across organizations, but certainly in education. I did have a question about Confucius. You quote Confucius everywhere. So Jack, I want you to look into your crystal ball and I want you to, with as many Confucius quotes, tell me what the future of education would look like in 2050 in reality. So if you were to say this is the truth of 2050, knowing what you know, what would you say would be the same and what would be different? Confucius actually predicted this many years ago. He said that in all circumstances to practice five things constitutes perfect virtue. And that's gravity, generosity of soul, sincerity, earnestness, and kindness. I think maybe there he was predicting holistic reporting. No one there has measured or celebrated those characteristics, but that's what hopefully education will do. We will still need exams to some extent because we can't just tear apart universities. It doesn't work like that. I think actually character should hold equal weight to hard skills and exam performance. And technology? If you go over 2050, right, we're going to face challenges in the world. I would say there are two existential challenges in the world currently. And I'm actually not sure 
I can't go back to 1700 in my mind or whatever, or in reality. And therefore, I don't know if people felt that the continual war or religious fights or diseases they couldn't explain were existential threats. Perhaps they were. But climate challenges or you know, the issues with climate change around the world, and in addition to that, the role of human beings in an AI world whereby they will do many of the things for humans, I think they are both fundamentally existential questions for humans. And I think it's quite important to then answer what does the school look like in 2050? So I don't think there will be robot teachers. I think knowledge delivery will change. and I think knowledge value will change. And what I mean by that is that currently we have a curricula that we put together. Our assumption is that because there's information that is either has a value or is required for the world we go into. And I think that fundamentally will change. I don't think the role of knowledge or being someone who controls knowledge or holds knowledge or values knowledge will change. So I think there will still be a delivery of knowledge in education. And I do think that AI, not necessarily robots, but there will be changes in the way we deliver knowledge. But what I do think is more important, regardless of the robot teachers thing, is that fundamentally people love their teachers, right? They are inspired by people. And I would actually go beyond the classic conception of your classroom teacher there. And for many people, it is their classroom teacher. But many of us could go back into time to when we were younger and someone, whether that be a parent or a footballer or a superstar, they would have inspired us and they will be the thing that drove us forward. So those relationships will still be absolutely crucial to what we do. And equally, those challenges, to go back to that kind of sustainability point and challenges of the climate, they may be technological solutions to the climate issues, but they will need very human answers and they will also need very human compromise. Right? The reason why we can't reach agreement on climate issues right now is because fundamentally, it's not because we don't have the technology or the ability or the understanding, it's because we don't have the ability to compromise our interests. And this is where I do become a bit, I guess, of uh, maybe a, a zealot, is that I think international schools are amazing. And I do think that because my experience of international schools is they do create links, of collaboration, love, and relationships across different cultures in a way that I think other schools, national schools, public schools, don't necessarily have in the same way. So I really do subscribe as well to a belief that international education will provide the solutions to the challenges we face. Knowledge acquisition can change, and that's absolutely fine. Who's to say that an AI tutor can't help you acquire the knowledge, and then you have to contextualize it and discuss it with a real human and make it fit into the world? Because an AI will never be able to help you fit it into your world. Only you can do that. It has to be according to your context and a human teacher will have to do that you can connect with me on twitter instagram and via linkedin remember keep inspiring schools we need more future school thinking now